someone once purchased a golf club. It was a putter because it was advertised to enhance your golf game, to be the top of the line putter. Video clips of different people using this club was used to show that every time you use this club, it sinks it in the hole, every time without fail. So he bought this club thinking it would boost his game. He brought the putter home and looked forward to the day where he was able to use it. The day finally came. He went to the golf course, and he knew that every time you use this club, it ends up finding the hole. So he started with his drive using a putter. And it didn't make it to the hole. So he tried again. So maybe that was a fluke. He tried again and tried hitting it again, and again, it didn't make it to the hole. Finally, the third time after hitting it, it didn't make it into the hole, and he threw his golf club in frustration. At the end of his day of golf, he brought back that club to the store to return it. And when he returned it, the lady behind the desk said, is there a problem with this golf club? And he said, yes, it doesn't work because the ball wasn't going in the hole. We're sold all kinds of goods and services in this life that are promising to make your life better, that are promising to make your life successful. And this story about a golf club is just one silly illustration of the many gadgets that we buy into, thinking that this is the missing key to whatever it is that our heart is pursuing. Whatever it is, it's going to give us meaning. Whatever it is, it's going to make us happy. Whatever it is that we're looking for. Only to realize at the end of the day, our, our golf bag is full, our wallets are emptied, and we still haven't found what we're looking for. The club wasn't the solution. Our lives can be likened to a golf club. And life, the continual pursuit of gathering together a complete set of clubs. This world will always offer us another club. The Lord shares with Moses some instructions here in our text in Leviticus 18 for picking out, quote-unquote, the right club. No, he isn't going golfing, and neither are the sons of Israel. But as they would enter the promised land, they would be faced with all kinds of bright and shiny new clubs that would promise them and to satisfy them, promise them that you'll have a wonderful life if you just do these things that we have been doing. And even before they are to enter the promised land, the Lord warns them of the danger in living like the others. And he calls his people to a different life. He calls his people to a better standard. I invite you again to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. And I'll invite you again to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Leviticus 18. And I'll read verses 1 through 5. Again, reading in Jesus' name. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my, and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Father God, these are your words, and you, your word is true. We come before you this morning humbly recognizing, Lord, that you are the Lord. That you are in your holy temple. And Lord, there are many times in our lives where we would like, like it more if you weren't on your throne. If we could do things our own way. 
But God, give us understanding. Give us the humility to know and, and to recognize that you are the Lord, we are not. And to humbly follow you and serve you in all things. Be with us this morning as we open up your word. Give us understanding, Lord. And, and we pray that your word would reach our hearts and our minds and our actions here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This book of Leviticus is given to the sons of Israel through Moses. Moses is meeting with the Lord in the tent of meaning, this portable tent of the presence of God. They could pick up and move wherever the sons of Israel were moving as they wandered in the wilderness. They had left Egypt. They're waiting and wandering and waiting to approach the promised land, which is promised to them. And for 40 years, they're wandering around in this wilderness, establishing this tent, picking it up and moving it, having the Lord's presence follow them every step of the way and following after the Lord's presence. It's a time of preparation, a time to prepare God's people for what they would need to be prepared for and ready for when they enter into this promised land, this new land. God gives his people instructions to set them apart from other nations detailing how they were to govern themselves. We call that the civil law. And so we can read about that here in, in this book. But also giving criteria for maintaining a ceremonial cleanliness that permitted them to enter into the presence of God. If you didn't follow certain instructions, you weren't allowed to come into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It's dealing with a religious or a ceremonial cleanliness here. And so they had those laws. But there are also instructions given that are applicable for all times and for all places. And this is God's moral law. And this is the law of God that still applies to us today in this day and age. It will apply to us tomorrow and the next day and the next. It applies to all people of all ages. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18 deals with the moral law. And these instructions apply to all people. So again, they apply to us here this morning. These instructions were given for life, not for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing and not just for good government here in their own country, but they reflect God's holy will for his people and for all people. And God's holy will looks different than the ways of the world. It often does. In verse 3 of the text, the Lord prohibits his people from doing what was done in the land of Egypt the land where they had just come from, the one in which they had been living all of their lives for 400 and some years. They had been living there in this land. That's what they knew. It's their history. It's their culture. Living in Egypt, they would have grown up with an Egyptian worldview, formed to believe or, or pressured to believe the things that the Egyptians believed. And now, to be clear, they were different than the Egyptians. There was a separation. The Israelites were slaves. They had their own culture. They had their own ways, rules, and regulations, the ways that they did life. It was a subculture, but still thrown into this big cultural stew that was Egypt. And God had both literally and figuratively called them out of Egypt. But as we read in, in the Exodus account, we keep seeing the people saying, I just want to go back. I just want to go back to Egypt. I knew what was there, and I really enjoy what I had there, and I could count on it. But right here, God, we're really suffering right now. 
So there's this continual pull of God's people to want to go back to Egypt, but God is calling them out of Egypt. And here again is another instance where God is calling his people out of Egypt to leave those ways behind them. He delivered them through the Red Sea. And as the sea closed behind them, that chapter of life was also supposed to close behind them. It's in the rear view mirror. And that was where it was meant to be kept. The practices of the Egyptians weren't to be carried forth into the promised land by these Israelites. There's also a warning in verse 3 not to do what is done in the land of Canaan. These Israelites weren't being brought to a new world of undeveloped land with a completely blank slate of culture that they would go and establish their own culture from the ground up. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to do something like that, to start all over again? Now, the people that are in that land, the people that God had called them to completely eradicate, but they said, ah, but they're nice people. We're going to keep them around for a little bit longer. And so that culture stays there. The Canaanites had their own ideas. They had their own gods. They had their own ways. They had their own rules and regulations for what should be done and what should not be done in their land. The sons of Israel, as they are entering into this promised land, weren't to be assimilated into the culture. They were continued to look different, called to be different, called to be set apart, called to holiness. The Egyptians had their own set of cultural golf clubs. To go back to that starting analogy here. And the Canaanites had their own set of clubs. Each one offering prosperity. Each one offering success and meaning and purpose and pleasure, fulfillment, happiness and joy. And, and offering you to live your best life now. The specific actions that God condemns aren't listed for us here in the first five verses that he is calling his people out of and calling them to avoid. But as you continue reading the text... You're made aware of the immorality that God is condemning. The immorality from which they are walking out of in Egypt and to what they are about to enter into as they refuse to eradicate the people from the land. The Lord is calling his people here to a higher sexual ethic than the world around them. One whose primary motivation isn't to please ourselves. But one whose primary motivation is of respecting God, respecting others, and respecting the family unit. For 13 verses, after verse 5 here, we read about respecting the family unit here. The Lord condemns incestuous relationships of all sorts and kinds. And reading these verses can make you a little bit nauseous at times because there was a reason why these had to be spelled out and said, do not do these things. These things are normal. These things are accepted. These things are okay and condoned in Egypt and in Canaan. And the Lord says, you have been called to something different. Incestuous relationships are not fitting for you or for anyone. The description continues to condemn homosexuality and continues to condemn bestiality as well. Verse 21 even mentions child sacrifice in the whole list of things. Offering what belongs to God to some other deity. More specifically, killing your own children for the worship of some other God. This is the lust of the flesh. And the wretchedness of the human heart, which simply says, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. 
I really wanted to do this. I thought that if I did this, that, that things would be better for me, that I could have my life, the best life that I wanted to at the time. No one was going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. The lust of the flesh and the wretchedness of the human heart simply says it seems like a good idea at the time. It has no concern for others. It has no concern for what's right or wrong. It only seeks to satisfy itself. And it was for these reasons that the Canaanites were getting expelled from the land. If you still have your Bibles open to chapter 18, look at verse 25 and see what it says there. For the land has become defiled, and therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. You see who's getting spewed out? Who's getting vomited from the land, who's getting barfed out of the land. That's a little graphic, sorry for that, but that's the word that the scriptures are using here. It's not God's people that are being expelled from the land. These are heathens, these are pagans, these are people who are worshiping some other god, and God says, this activity is wrong. And so you are being spewed out of this land. The heathens here are breaking the moral laws of God and defiling the land so much so that God throws them up out of the land and he does so violently through the military conquest of the sons of Israel. It was an abomination to the Lord and the Lord had seen enough and he's bringing his judgment through his people as they conquered there. The sons of Israel have been warned not to do as the Egyptians or the Canaanites. And we do well to heed God's advice for us. No, it may not be an Egyptian culture that we're surrounded in. It may not be the Canaanite culture that we see around us, but there is still sexual immorality all around us. Sex in any and every circumstance is now talked about as a fundamental human right. And somehow we're allowed to separate the consequences of sex from that and separate that from the act and say, yeah, everyone's allowed to do this. They have a basic human right. This is what it means to be human. And it's protected by law. There are no solid limitations. There are no solid boundaries for it. And when the natural result of a man and woman coming together creates a new life, and sacrificing that life in the worship of progress, in the worship of women's rights, in the worship of success, in the worship of fear of the future, in the worship of any other thing is also seen as a human right. This is our culture. This is what we are being formed to believe from the world around us. And yet God has called us into this time, into this place, and he has called us to live differently. He has called us to holiness. It may not be Molech anymore that we are sacrificing our children to, but our cultural stew says whatever satisfies you, go for it. It's another empty promise that leads not to human flourishing, but it leads ultimately to spiritual death. When you pull back the curtain to reveal what's behind curtain number three on let's make a deal, you find out, oh, there's death. It's not really what I wanted. But at the time, the curtain looks so desirable, and there's that hope, and there's that bait, there's that carrot on the stick that we charge after, refusing to look beyond what's right in front of us. What's behind that curtain is ultimately death, and it always is. Thankfully, God hasn't left us to figure out all this stuff out on our own. But he has shown us the path of life. 
He has determined what's right and what's wrong. He defines morality for us in his word. And he does so not to withhold something good from us or something better from us, but he does so out of his love and his care and concern. He does so to spare us from death, to spare us from from trouble, from, from all kinds of problems that result from doing whatever it is that we want to do. Because God's way is best and he knows that. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. The Lord offers life in his statutes. Life in its fullness. As, as one commentary defines here, it's liveliness and vitality, prosperity and blessing. A life full of meaning and satisfaction. A life lived in obedience to the Lord. The abominations that are listed here in this chapter and the sexual perversions that aren't listed here but are certainly included here in this text that we see in our culture around us bring destruction, bring pain and suffering. Not life, not fulfillment. Their promises are empty and void, resulting in death. God doesn't desire death for you. He doesn't desire death for anyone. He doesn't desire death for the culture either. And so he has acted to spare us from this death. He has given us his word. He has given us the way life should be lived so that we can avoid it. The Lord desires that people would have life and and not an existence that merely seeks to scrape by, but a life lived as Christ defines it abundantly. And the abundant life is lived in recognition of who the Lord is. Recognition that the Lord is God. Recognition and submission to the triune God of Scripture. God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. God the Son who redeems us and God the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. Three times in these five verses, the Lord reminds Moses who it is who is speaking to him. Who it is who is speaking to his people. And he uses his personal name here. I am the Lord. If you look in your Bible, you'll see that that's all capitalized, meaning that this is the name that the Lord revealed to Moses, to himself, as he said, I have not been known by this name before, but now I am going to show you who I am. I am the Lord. I am what I am. This is on the cusp of this whole Exodus event. God is the God who hears. He is the Lord who sees, the Lord who knows, the Lord who cares. The Lord who acts, the Lord who delivers, the Lord who redeems, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord who gives life, the Lord who calls a people to himself, calling them out of darkness into his light. This is who is making these demands. In both verses 2 and 4, the Lord modifies his statement of identity a little bit to declare and define his relationship with his people. I am the Lord, your God. He is the God who has called us into a relationship with himself. He defines that relationship. He defines the rules for us as well. The Lord warns against the abominations of the surrounding cultures because they aren't befitting for anyone especially for a people who are called by his name. They and we don't answer to our animal-like impulses and our desires because we know that God has called us to something higher, that we are accountable to someone else more so than our own passions and desires. He's called us to something better. He's called us to life. 
The Lord has called us to follow him in in his statutes and in his judgments. And that means that we aren't the ones that get to determine what's right and what's wrong. We don't determine what's right and what's wrong based on how we feel. We don't determine what's right and wrong based on what culture says is right and wrong. We don't determine what's moral and what's immoral. No, God is the one who defines that. And so we submit to the Lord's judgment, being reminded again of who he is. He is the Lord. He is a creator. His creation was made to reflect his glory, to reflect his beauty, not to pervert it and usurp it for our own desires, which we're so often good at, aren't we? He's established his rules for our own good. And he calls us to live not as the world lives, an endless pursuit of pleasure and purpose, but as he has commanded, resulting in a life lived to the fullest, resulting in a life lived with no regrets. He's called us to holiness. That's the ideal, and that's the goal. He is the prize, and we forget that. And our hearts turn our eyes to chase after the fruitless promises of this world. We see them. We want them. All of these shiny clubs with all of the promises to make us the world's greatest golfer. And maybe it isn't any of the things that are listed here in in Leviticus 18 that are the things that pull at your heartstrings. And then again, maybe it is. Maybe it's some other perversion of God's perfection that we're content to settle for, that we chase after. And what then? The end of the chapter has some stern words in verses 26 through 30. I won't read all of them here, but I'll summarize it for us. We're to keep God's statutes and judgments so that we too aren't spewed out of the promised land. You realize what's at stake here? Do you realize the cost of following after our own hearts, of chasing after the clubs the culture puts in front of us as this is what meaning is found, this is where purpose is found, this is where your happiness is? being spewed out of a promised land. For these Israelites, there is a very physical reality to that. The physical land that was given to them that they would be vomited up from the land. And we've been studying in Sunday school, that's exactly what happened as they turned their hearts from the Lord. We too have a land that's been promised to us. A land that Christ is preparing for each one of us. A land reserved for you with a dwelling place in the presence of God. A land where life is abundant and endless. A land in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. The continual practice of these abominations, the willful disregard of the Lord's statutes and judgments, is a line dance with death. A line dance of being expelled from this place that has been reserved for you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Verse 29 says, there's not a whole lot of gray area there, is there? It's pretty black and white. God has set the boundaries. This is the way it is to be done. Not only does God call us to holiness, but he demands it. So we have to ask the question, what is it? that makes us holy. We can look at chapter 18 and we can look at it as a checklist and say, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. Nope, not that either. Okay, I'm doing pretty good. And we can make the false assumption that because we haven't done these things that that's what makes us holy. But that's not what makes us holy. Holiness isn't something that we can obtain for ourselves. It's not something that we do either. Holiness comes from the Lord who calls us to be his people. From the Lord who took on flesh 
and entered into this cultural stew that we live in. He knows what it's like being surrounded by immorality because he was immersed in a godless culture and he remained unstained by the world his whole life here. He, in fact, left his mark on this world as the water and blood poured from his side, calling us to live something different in a different way, but also empowering us and also giving to us a life that is different. A man who had never done a single thing wrong in his life is executed. The perfect law of God is satisfied. Holiness is accomplished, and it's one. Christ was cut off in our place. As the law declares, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. God knew that. For you and I who haven't kept God's law perfectly in its holiness and perfection, we too are cursed and we aren't holy. Whether it's Leviticus 18, whether it's some other passage of scripture that we are deciding to chase after and say, God, your word says this, but I know best, so I'm going my own way. We aren't holy. So Christ came, and he willingly stepped in to take the curse from us, to redeem us from that curse, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And that though our lives may have been filled with these abominations in chapter 18, or any other abomination that's listed throughout Scripture, that we too might be called out of that culture, might be called out of that life, and pulled from that culture just as the sons of Israel were delivered from Egypt and called to be in a new land, as God has made us sons of faith in Christ Jesus. So where do we go from here? A couple of options for us, a couple of choose-your-own-adventure paths, I suppose. To those who are flirting with pursuing these empty passions, these empty idols, learn the price following those things is. It's death. It's being vomited up from the land of promise and heed the Lord's warning. The warning graciously comes to you now before it's too late that God is calling you to himself. And to those who have realized that they've been chasing empty pursuits, that you have been buying into the lies of your own hearts, of this culture we live in, to hear the word of the Lord calling you to life, calling you out of death, calling you to a different life, calling you to eternal life and follow him. And to those who have already been called out from the ways of this world, see the heart of the Lord, who in his grace and his mercy has come and delivered you from this cultural stew. And see the heart and desire of this Lord who has come into this world to deliver not only you, but those around us as well. And to live our lives as a reflection of God's purity of God's holiness, to live our lives in obedience to God's grace and mercy, realizing that we, we have received, God has called us to share that with those around us. At the end of the day, we are to remember this. I am the Lord. And not just I am the Lord, but I am the Lord, your God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. God, your word can be ugly at times as it reveals the ugliness of our own human hearts, the ugliness of man. God, as we look into our own hearts, as we have confessed earlier, we see sin and death within ourselves. Lord, we have not loved you above all things, nor our neighbors as ourselves. 
God, we spend our so much time and energy chasing after the things that this world says will give us meaning and purpose. But God, at the end of the day, we're just beat. At the end of the day, we're, we're battered, we're tired, we're exhausted. And Lord, not only that, but it's a path that leads to death. Help us to see that, God. Help us to hear your call in our lives to call us to a different life, to call us to yourself. Jesus, we thank you that you weren't content just to call us to yourself, but no, you came and you entered into this world to come and drag us to yourself to save us. But Christ, you came to accomplish holiness for us, to be the curse in our place, in our stead. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your gift of grace, your gift of mercy. Thank you for calling us out of death and into life and into abundant life, nonetheless. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow you each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.